Heavenly Father, today as we gather in the great name of your son Jesus and know his presence here with us, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and that we would learn more about who you are. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So, many Christians have a love-hate relationship with the book of Proverbs. We love the sparkle and punch of the individual Proverbs and can quote many from memory. Some, like pride comes before a fall, have made their way into everyday conversation. Although the actual proverb is, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. But many of us find it frustrating to try to read or study this book, let alone teach or preach on it. Thank you, Simon. (laughs) Some parts sound like tedious advice we never asked for, whilst other parts mystify us with riddles and cosmic symbolism. It sometimes seems easier to draw memorable quotes from the book of Proverbs and just leave it at that. We are a society who loves sayings and advertising, TV comedies and social media create the catchphrases that pepper our discussions. I've lost count of the number of new sayings my teenager introduces to our conversations. For example, it's giving. You can throw this one into conversation to describe the vibe something is giving you. Is a dress you're trying on a little too long and formal? Maybe it's giving prom. Your friends have choreographed a particularly cheesy dance. Maybe it's giving high school musical. In fact, if something is just great, you can also use it's giving as a standalone compliment. So those of you with teenagers, you can go home and impress them later. (laughs) There is also a renewed interest in wisdom in our time, but often it takes the form of sentimental life lessons or management pet talk. Real wisdom that not only observes how life works, but also asks ultimate questions about how and why life is to be lived is not as popular. Wisdom of this sort is usually relegated to the back of bookshops in the philosophy and religion section, whilst guides to health, wealth and success in life are placed at the front to greet customers as they walk in. Biblical wisdom surprisingly offers both, although we will do ourselves and the book a disservice if we think of Proverbs as a tick box exercise or as the kind of success handbook we find in the self-help section. There is so much packed into these verses, but we're primarily going to look at why wisdom and how things like obedience, commitment, trust, and discipline can help us to obtain it. The book of Proverbs weaves several voices or characters through its structure. Sometimes Lady Wisdom shouts to the audience. Sometimes Solomon is communicating in the third person. Here he continues in one of these paradigms, the first person illustration of a father giving advice to a son. And Solomon's advice begins with a warning to never forget my law. Solomon didn't mean my law in the sense of his own personal decrees, but as God's word that he had internalized and made personal. 
deciding to not forget God's word is more than a mental exercise of memory. It is connected to a life of obedience. This obedience is one of the hearts. Our goal in obedience is not mere outward conformity to God's will, but a heart that loves and obeys him. Solomon says that choosing the way of wisdom is in our best interests. It will prolong life and bring peace. The nature of Proverbs, however, is not one of formulaic guarantees, so of course there are exceptions. Plenty of wise people die young or face persecution, but what Proverbs does is set out the general rule of reality, principles and most likely outcomes. Fighting against reality takes a toll on our physical as well as our spiritual selves, but when we embrace reality, we can have peace because we know that God is in control of all things, whilst we have control over very few things, so we can rest in that reality. However, as Proverbs emphasizes throughout, it is completely within our control to gain and live in wisdom. But wisdom is not an activity that you turn to. It is a perspective to be chosen and a way of life in which to walk. Verses three and four say, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. These two words, love and faithfulness, are covenant words used throughout the Old Testament. Love is essentially the Hebrew equivalent of agape in Greek. It is a love based upon commitment. It is a love that declares, I will love you, full stop. Coupled with faithfulness, God is doubly emphasizing to us that his love for us knows no end. And to bind love and faithfulness around our neck means what we do outwardly should reflect what we believe inwardly. Not only will this help physically, bringing peace and prosperity, it will help you to find favor in the sight of God and man. I was reminded here of an account we read in Luke's gospel. Jesus had just returned to Jerusalem after teaching in the synagogue as a boy of 12. Although we don't really know anything about Jesus growing up, Luke writes that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Next, we are told to trust God and not lean on our own understanding. The word trust here implies both the decision to trust God, but also a commitment to create a habit of trusting. Trusting in God isn't a decision we simply make in our head. That's the first step. But we have to follow it up with action. When you first follow Jesus, you are deciding to trust him. Following that decision comes a commitment to actually follow through. This means that throughout our daily lives, we are actively placing our trust in God. This isn't an instant process. Placing our trust in God is something that we have to learn. In each situation that comes our way, we have to take it and place it in his hands. The word heart describes the extent to which we are to trust in God. This word indicates the center of our being. In other words, we are to trust God with everything we are and everything we have, no exceptions. 
Trusting in the Lord with all your heart means that you have placed your hope in Christ alone. However, even after placing our trust in God, we can be tempted to resort back to our old way of living, leaning on our own understanding. But God says, rather than looking for wisdom within us or the world, followers of Jesus need only look to him. This proverb ends with a promise. If we trust in God and if we lean not on our own understanding, then he will make our paths straight. The reality is when we trust in ourselves and lean on our own wisdom, it doesn't work out so well for us. I'm sure we can all relate to situations like this. It's important to note here that this shouldn't be taken to mean that those who trust in God will have a good life by the world's standards. We need only look at Jesus' life and what he went through to know that's not the case. This proverb doesn't promise that everything will always work out in our favor. Sometimes we will face difficulties and go down dark and difficult paths as part of following Jesus. Abraham was leaning not on his own understanding when he and Isaac were walking up the mountain to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Daniel was leaning not on his own understanding when he was being led to the pit to spend the night with some hungry lions. Our limited understanding can make it seem like the trials of this life mean God isn't in control or good. But what Proverbs is communicating here is that what appears to be right in the moment isn't always the case. And what appears to be doom and gloom in the moment can be used for good if we trust God. As Romans 8 verse 28 says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So the Bible doesn't promise us an easy life, rather it promises that God is with us. This proverb paints an eastern scene, a path which needs to be straightened and stones which have to be removed. This is not a picture of a paved road with curbs and a smooth road surface, although what is one of those? We are reminded of well-worn paths strewn with stones, full of dangers. Straightening such a path means removing rocks and making it passable. This is the promise found here. Trust in the Lord in all your ways, then there will be a passable road for you. Then no insurmountable obstacles will force you off the road so that you might lose your way. This road will lead you in the pilgrimage of life, to the unrevealed future, to the cross of Calvary, to the ever-flowing fountain of forgiveness and to your place in heaven. There certainly will be much stumbling, but you will be able to continue. We're also told to fear God. This doesn't mean we are to be frightened of him. This fear of God arises out of our knowledge of the grace, mercy, love and forgiveness that leads us who receive it to fear the Lord in holy wonder and reverence and awe. So to fear God is a relational statement, and we are told that a relationship with God is the beginning of finding wisdom. We see this in the Gospels too, where wise people listen to Jesus. Wisdom realizes that the path to joy comes in admitting that we are broken. We find life by admitting that apart from God, we are spiritually dead. So we turn to Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins, 
we see in the crucified Christ the wisdom of God, and when we turn to him, we gain life. One important truth we should note here is that God's discipline is not the same as judgment. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross of Christ is our assurance that there is no longer any judgment for sin for those who have been covered by the righteousness of Jesus. It is our assurance that all discipline is a carefully ordained measure of God's love being poured out for us. Behind discipline is delight. He wants the best for us. When circumstances are going smoothly and our own plans are being fulfilled, it can be easy to forget the Lord and everything he has done. God's loving correction gives us a glorious opportunity to mind the depths of his person. When we search out his character, we are reminded of his strength, his praiseworthiness, and his salvation. We're reminded that Christ is indeed sufficient for us and all of our weaknesses. So why wisdom? We are told in verses 14 to 15 about wisdom's great worth and value. In these verses, we see that those who give their lives in the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of God, will gain a great profit, far greater rewards than anything this world has to offer. Godly wisdom is more valuable than silver, yields better returns than gold, and it is more precious than rubies. I didn't know much about the value of these items, so did a little research this week, and found out that you can buy an ounce of silver for £19.27, and an ounce of gold for £1,532.48. That's pretty costly, but I probed a little further and found that the most valuable ruby ever sold was a 25.9 carat Burmese stone called a Sunrise Ruby, which was auctioned in Geneva for $30.3 million. That's a lot of cash. But all of these together are not as valuable as the wisdom of God. In fact, verse 15 says that nothing you desire can compare to her. I think the reason why in Philippians, Paul says that everything he had ever obtained or accomplished was nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And the reason the writer of Proverbs says that wisdom brings greater returns than silver, gold, or precious rubies is because titles, accomplishments, and prestige do not make a life. There is nothing more valuable, no greater treasure than knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. So to finish and summarize, the wise person walks a specific way. It's a daily commitment. It's a union with Christ. If we are truly united with Christ, we commune with him. And wisdom comes when we submit our lives to God's word and his will, seeking to apply his truths by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. In Matthew 5 and Psalm 1, we learn that blessings come to those who seek to walk with God. We see the same idea shared with us in Proverbs 3, where we are told that we will be blessed if we find wisdom and gain understanding. Once again, we see that this is a pursuit and not a passive activity. You and I will never gain understanding by simply hoping that we will learn of God's ways. We will never stumble upon God's wisdom if we are living aimlessly. We must passionately pursue God to know him 
and to gain wisdom about what is truly important in life. Amen.